Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and special guest host Chris Crane are back with a new episode with special guest Ankur Rungta, co-founder and CEO of C3 Industries, a multi-state vertically integrated cannabis company with a portfolio including brands like award-winning cloud cover cannabis and galactic meds and a retail network high-profile cannabis shop. In this episode, Anne and Chris connect with Encore to discuss the origins of C3, the company's choice to remain private instead of going public, the future of interstate commerce, and Encore's ideal endgame for the company he started. Encore also provides insights into what he's seeing on the ground in the Michigan and Oregon markets and how the industry is adapting to rapidly changing market conditions. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Ankur Rungta, co-founder and CEO of C3 Industries. Hey, everyone. Today I'm recording uh, with my good buddy, Chris Crane. Uh, and today we are talking with Ankur Rungta, the co-founder and CEO of C3 Industries. So excited to have him on. But before we get into the C3 Industries story, um, Ankur, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, tell us about your life before cannabis and what brought you into the cannabis industry. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Um, I grew up in Western New York, outside of Buffalo. Uh, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so really always a creature of the Midwest, I think, growing up. Um, I went to undergrad and law school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So I originally came to Ann Arbor in 2001 um, and was here until about 2008 when I graduated from law school. And then I went on to work in New York. I worked as a corporate lawyer first. I worked at Sullivan and Cromwell, which is a big transactional law firm in, in the city. I spent a couple of years doing that. And then I moved over to the investment banking side at Molus and Company, which is a uh, M&A and, and restructuring advisory shop also in New York. And I was there for three or four years. Uh, so I spent, you know, all told about six years in the corporate finance world. And really during that time, I always had a, you know, a, a thought and a desire to eventually leave and do something entrepreneurial. Um, and my brother, Vishal, who's a co-founder of C3, uh, also was in a kind of a similar path. He was in banking and then in private equity. And, and he also, you know, we, we were looking to try to do something together. And so we both left the corporate world kind of in 2013, 2014, and, and, you know, began kind of planning to start this business, which was founded in 2017. And I think beyond that, I would also just mention that I've, I've been around cannabis personally for a long time. Um, I've always had a lot of passion for the product. It's always been part of my life. Um, Ann Arbor has always been a hub for the industry, even pre-licensing. Uh, and so I've always kind of been in and around the business for a long time. And so uh, to me, it always felt like I had an interesting uh, combination of skill sets, both from like the traditional corporate finance world and working at you know, great firms and, and getting a lot of great experience and, and, and relationships from that, but then also having, you know, a pretty long history in cannabis and a, and a very sort of intimate uh, knowledge of the product and, and the marketplace and all that. So, uh, so, you know, we, we always felt like we could 
you know, spend some time building great experience in the corporate world. And then ideally put that to work, you know, building our own enterprise, which is what we're trying to do now. And and was it, I mean, I have a couple of follow-ups on that. And was it, was it, did you always think that you were going to do this in cannabis once you had the corporate experience or was there like a sort of a light bulb moment where you're like, yep, cannabis is the area we want to go into. You know, I think, uh, you know, when I was in law school, uh, so kind of 2005 to 2008, um, I think that's when it, it became apparent to me that there was a, an interesting opportunity that would be emerging here and, and, in the licensed cannabis space. Cause again, I had been around the business in all of its previous iterations. And so, um, you know, and as, as a, you know, young studying lawyer and, uh, trying to understand where things might go from a regulatory standpoint and, uh, and, and, you know, really trying to think about what this might look like. It felt like uh, as I was going to be, you know, in New York working and building my career, that there would also be all these markets opening up and a real, you know, finally a real movement towards, reform and, and, and proper licensing and regulation. And so it was, it was always, I'd say part of our thesis when I say our, my, my brother and I, in terms of, you know, this is a vertical that we really felt like we could bring something to and, and had a passion for that, you know, for us, we weren't, it wasn't just about doing something entrepreneurial, but, but, you know, in a space that we loved. And so, uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd say it was, it, there was, the idea was there for a long time. And then, you know, like everything, it took time to really get to the point where we were capable of trying to execute something. Makes sense. So I do want to ask you here in a moment about the sort of the C3 story, but uh, you mentioned a couple of times you, you, you started this with your brother. Like, how has that been working day to day with your brother? I know some people, they, you know, some, some, some siblings would probably kill each other if they had to. Well, you did it, together. Chris. I did. I've worked with my, I've worked, I've, I, you know, it's funny. I always say my brother and I probably got along better as coworkers than we do as brothers. Uh, but uh, but uh, no, no, no I, I kid mostly. Um, but no, what's that, what's that, what's that experience been like for you? Uh, I think for us, it's been very positive, honestly. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, we're well aware of all of like the potential pitfalls of working with family. Um, and I think that, you know, the way I look at it is it's, it's a lot about the, the, you know, if you're going to do business with your family members, like what type of people are involved and what type of personalities. And, and so it's not that you can say, well, you know, all family partnerships are a bad idea or all of them are a good idea. I think it's very individual. And, and for us, you know, I think people that know us would say that we're quite, you know, there's just two brothers, two, two, you know, two siblings in our family, him and I. Uh, and so we are very close, but we're, we're very different. I think we bring different mentalities and different instincts to the business. And um, I think in our case, it feels like it's pretty complimentary. Um, and, and I think also from a personality standpoint, I think we're both kind of, you know, we're both pretty alpha, I would say, and, and both feel strongly about you know, our opinions and, 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 you know, our perspectives, but then we're also pretty quick to like come around to the other guy's perspective if we're, if we're won over or convinced or whatever. And so I think, I think we've figured out, um, you know, how to get along with each other and how to respect each other's opinions. And, and, you know, I think it's, it feels like we get to a good answer sometimes through our process and with our different perspectives. And, and I would say that, you know, equally about our third part, third co-founder, whose name is Joel Ruggiero, uh, who's somebody that we grew up with in Buffalo and we've known since we were kids. Um, you know, he brings his own third kind of perspective and viewpoint and, and he's not family, but he's basically family with, you know, the, the, how long we've all known each other and the level of trust. And so um, I, I think we've made it work. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the way that we approach our partnership with each other. Um, but, you know, it can obviously 
you know, our wives don't love the fact that every family dinner conversation turns into a business <laughs> conversation. So, uh, so, I can sympathize you know, with that one. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, what do your families think? I mean, they, they you know, were kind of expecting a different path, but, you know, what's their, what's their uh, take? I mean, you know, I'm the older brother. And so, and I'm the guy who, you know, I, my life hasn't been like one linear path. I, I, I definitely had periods where I made my parents' lives very difficult, and, you know, was a, a confused young soul. And so, you know, when they, I have a pretty interesting history with my parents and with my, with cannabis in my life. And, and, you know, they, they, you know, have probably mixed views about some of that. And so when I originally, you know, when the originally the, the plan came up that, you know, Michelle and I would both leave our careers and look to go into this field. I mean, you can, you can imagine that they were like, it's one thing if you want to do this, but you're going to ruin your brother's career. <laughs> so, uh, and so, you know, th there was a period of, of them buying into, you know, what we were trying to do and, and understanding that it was a real opportunity and that we had a plan. And uh, I think now they're our biggest cheerleaders, which is awesome. Um, and, you know, whenever like, some family friend or, or family comes into town. It's like, Hey, can we take them for a tour of your facility? And then, you know, I, can, I, I just chuckle that. every time, because it's like, <laughs> you know, it's some like Indian uncle of mine or something, you know, who 20 years ago, I would have gotten a lecture for even being near cannabis. And now they're, you know, raving about my, my cultivation facility or whatever. So it's, it's, it's interesting how that, how that works. But no, there was, I mean, you know, there was some real consternation and, um, and, you know, for, for my parents, for both of their kids to do this, it's, it's obviously a big bet that we're making. Yeah. Well, then, so tell us about how specifically C3 started. What was the, the original focus of the company and, and what's with the name? Yeah. So the focus, you know, originally, first and foremost, it was always about cultivation. Michelle, um, Joel, myself, we, we really kind of grew up around flower. We've all, you know, all been passionate about flower for a long time. Uh, Joel has been a cultivator for 20 years. Uh, Michelle and I have been involved in other parts of the business for a long time. And so it really, it was always originally about producing great flower. Um, and, you know, we, we started the company around our brand cloud cover. Uh, it was really originally just a wholesale flower business. Our first facility was in Oregon. Uh, and so, that was where we really began. That was originally our intention was we want to be great cultivators. We want to be multi-state cultivators and do it in scale, but show that, you know, we're able to produce high quality products, even at scale. And so that was the original thesis. Um, we went into Oregon and started operating in 2018 as a wholesale only cultivator, which was, you know, a time when that marketplace was in complete collapse. And so it, it quickly forced us to, to one kind of, really optimize our business and figure out how we would survive in that environment. And then two, it, you know, was the first of many lessons that we learned about how these markets work and how, how dependent and how affected they are by the regulatory frameworks that are there. Uh, and so, you know, since then we've evolved and, and become much more of a vertically integrated player. Retail has become a much bigger part of our business in the last several years. Um, we're, you know, today operating in four States and, and entering a couple new ones. Uh, and so, but it was a very formative time for us and experience in Oregon. It was extremely stressful, you know, in that marketplace to be trying I mean, to, what a place to learn it. though. Yeah. 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 No, and that's what, you know, I, you know, people often ask me like, well, what differentiates you guys? Cause we are, you know, some people look at this as a commodity marketplace. And I think, uh, you know, that's, I think that is a key differentiator for us is that we were, we're the product of really competitive and difficult markets and we've survived that and, and figured out a way to even grow our business out of those markets. Whereas, 
you know, a lot of our competitors that are of our size or larger, you know, they had a very different progression to get to this point. So is C3 like out of your focus on cultivation and there's three partners? No, <laughs> no, sorry. I didn't answer that part of the question. No. Our pro- our pro- I, then I shouldn't guess. <laughs> no, sorry. Our, no, it's fine. Our, our, no, our product brand is cloud covered cannabis. So yeah. CCC. So that's really how we, you know, it's just sort of a shortened version of our, of our product brand. And that's, you know, we do view that still as our core brand. Of course, now we've got 18 stores open. Those are all called high profile. We've got some other really exciting brands in the marketplace, but you know, our core identity is still very tied together with cloud cover cannabis. And yeah, so that's, that's where the corporate name came from. And originally we thought we wanted to, uh, you know, be a little more coy with our corporate identity. (laughs) I think those times have changed, but, uh, but there was a, there was a time when you wanted to be a little more innocuous, maybe at the parent level. That I, I know how that goes, uh, picking an, an innocuous sounding corporate name so uh, you can get bank accounts and uh, everything else. <laughs> totally get it. Um, yeah. uh, that, 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 you know, uh, sadly, that still hasn't changed from the early days. Uh, you still don't want to put uh, cannabis or marijuana or uh, anything you know, identifying in your name, um, at least in the corporate names. So DB, you know, DBAs are definitely our friends in this business. Uh, That's right. That's right. So, you, you know, you, you started talking about this one a little bit. So, uh, you know, how have you guys had to change or adapt your business model over the years to account for unforeseen challenges, right? New market conditions. So you mentioned obviously Oregon uh, being, you know, becoming a very difficult market and, and the need to, to, to pivot there. Uh, but like, you know, like to hear just a little bit more about maybe that and other, you know, other unforeseen challenges and ways that the business has had to, you know, adapt and change as you've navigated this, this complex cannabis marketplace. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think change is the one constant <laughs> in this place, as, as as you guys probably know. Uh, you know, we've we've seen you know ongoing kind of sh- evolutions in in all of our markets over time, and that those evolutions in supply and demand dynamics then affect you know our business choices. And so, if you if you look at our company, you know, we are in very different markets across the country. So, of course, there's our legacy market of Oregon. It's got you know dynamics at one end of the spectrum. Uh, our, our home market, our, our largest market is Michigan uh, by revenue. And, and that market, of course, has seen some drastic shifts in the last six or 12 months uh, with competition and margins. Uh, mass, you know, which is the third market we entered, that's you know, somewhere further on the spectrum, definitely seeing compression, uh, but, but not at the levels of Michigan and certainly not as mature as in Oregon. Uh, and then we're in Missouri, which is still medical, uh, limited licenses, but still not such a small number that it's totally uncompetitive. And so it's got its own dynamics and it's likely moving towards adult use uh, at the end of this year. And so I mentioned that because all of our markets have very different dynamics. And so it's not even that we're evolving over time. It's that even at any given moment in time, we have to have very different strategies in our different, different markets. And uh, so it's caused us to really look at our business in a very granular way, uh, try to not take a one size fits all approach to uh, across these different states, because it just, it just frankly doesn't work. Um, And just staying incredibly fluid all the time. And so specifically, you know, on the product side of things, of course, the big story is, you know, increasing capacity in all these markets, of course, to varying degrees, but generally, I think all of them are seeing more supply, more capacity come online, uh, lowering wholesale prices. And so what that means to us is a couple of things. So one is have to be dialed in from an operational standpoint. So 
Are we controlling our cost of production? Are we hitting the yields and quality levels that we want to? Uh, are we, you know, just doing everything we can from that standpoint to have an efficient business? And then the other piece to me, which is even more important, frankly, is how do we avoid being commoditized, right? How, what do we do to be viewed as a premium brand, as a premium product? Uh, how do we uh, differentiate ourselves and, and not just use the same language and same uh, same messaging that that our competitors are using? And so that that is the much bigger question and, and bigger exercise over time for me in, in brand building and, and equity building. Um, and I think, you know, I think over time, in my view, all MSOs have to be thinking like brands um, or they will become commoditized. Uh, and, and, and then on the flip side, I think a lot of brands need to be thinking like MSOs and thinking about controlling their supply chain and, and their distribution. Uh, and so, so we really want to be a brand at MSO over time. And I think that's, that's the strategy that we feel like is going to ultimately allow us to, to be successful long-term. And then, you know, on the retail side, just to touch on that, uh, that's really a tale of different markets depending on their licensing framework. Um, I think in markets that, you know, are limited number of retail or fixed number of retail at the state level, I think you're generally seeing, you know, strong markets. They're pretty orderly. Uh, of course, your average revenue per door will matter on you know how many retail licenses for the population, et cetera. Uh, but you, you're seeing, I think, a decent amount of stability in that part of the market. Those retailers are still holding margin, uh, and and you know, in some states where there's very few licenses, of course, they're doing huge volume still. Um, and then you have states that are open from a retail standpoint, like Michigan. Um, there, it's an absolute knife fight, uh, and you're seeing uh, you know a huge amount of uh, uh, margin compression. You have people playing a discount game and a volume game where they're, you know, willing to, you know, scrape by on very tight gross margins. Uh, obviously you have revenue pressure with more doors opening for, for a fixed TAM. Um, and so those markets are where you really have to have your retail playbook dialed in, in my opinion. Uh, meaning you got to have your operations, you got to have your customer service, your marketing, uh, your marketing has to be really thoughtful and targeted. It's not just about spraying money out there. Cause when, you know, in Michigan, if there's 50 billboards in a row and 30 of them are cannabis, you know, you have to question the value of that. Right. And, and where are the dollars best spent? And so, so there's a lot, you know, in my mind, the retailers who are going to be successful in the markets like Michigan are going to, you know, be long-term successful in this industry because they're being forced to really dial in their businesses. And, and that's kind of where we are. I mean, we're seeing a huge amount of competition in our largest market here and, you know, it's forcing us to, to just become better, better retailers every day. And, and that's a, a lot of our energy and attention is focused on that, just given how much retails, you know, it's such, it's such a big part of our business now. Well, that's great. So you, so you mentioned uh, Oregon, Michigan, Missouri, and Massachusetts. Um, so how, how did you go about choosing, choosing those states? I mean, clearly it's not, uh, you know, not, not by geography, right? I mean, you, you probably couldn't get uh, states a lot further, you know, further apart than each other. So like, how did you go about choosing those markets in terms of uh, where you wanted to be in business? Yeah. I, I wish I could, you know, look back and, and tell an elegant story of, you know, the, the great logic that went into some of this. But um, I think the reality is that, in the beginning, you know, Oregon and Michigan were our two original target markets. Um, Michigan is where a lot of our corporate team is based. It's kind of what we consider home base, even though I was in New York for many years. It's it's really where uh, a lot of our you know kind of uh, core team and, and infrastructure is. And then Oregon was where Joel had been based. And so originally we said we're going to go out in Oregon and Michigan and cultivate. And I think we were 
not, we were more confident that we could overcome market factors and supply demand issues and still be successful. And so we, we didn't, we weren't necessarily just chasing limited license states. Um, and so we started in these two markets and then, you know, Missouri was an organic license application process that we wanted to participate in, or, you know, we basically wrote these apps internally and, uh, and, you know, threw our hat in the ring and felt like we could be competitive in a merit-based process like that. And, and we were able to win those licenses uh, and, and, you know, kind of found that to be a very attractive market from the beginning and, and continue to do so now. And then mass was sort of opportunistic. Uh, we, you know, had the ability to tie up some attractive sites to the beginning, both for cultivation and retail and saw a path to getting those off the ground. It ended up taking far longer than I had hoped and anticipated. And that's a, that's another story, but, uh, but, you know, just sort of opportunistically, uh, saw, you know, saw a path to enter that market. And so I think, you know, there's been a little bit of what presented itself at the moment and us having, you know, we're not the largest MSO with unlimited resources. So sometimes you take, you know, you look at what's in front of you and what looks interesting and you, and you take a run at it. Um, I think now, you know, as we've gotten these four markets online, our business has scaled pretty considerably over the last year. And so now I think we're finally at a point where we're trying to take a little bit of a more uh, long-term and holistic view of how we want to build the portfolio in terms of the new markets that we enter. I think we're very much having a Midwest and Northeast focus as we move forward. Um, we are anticipating that we will get licensing in Connecticut uh, we're in an appeal process right now, but that I, I think it will there'll be a positive resolution there. Um, so that'll give us a foothold in that market with cultivation and processing and, and also the ability to open two retail stores. Um, we did win uh, a retail, our first retail license uh, in New Jersey in the last few days, and we are chasing some others. And so, uh, you know, we, we're building a little Northeast presence between Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Jersey. Um, we do talk about entering New York at some point as our, you know, that's where we grew up, that Michelle still lives in Western New York. And so, uh, New York is something we'll look to eventually enter. And then in the Midwest, um, of course we're in Michigan and Missouri. Um, we are very actively, um, looking to acquire licenses and, and have some deals in process in Illinois. Um, so we do expect to enter that market, uh, in the near future. And then Ohio has also been a very top target uh, of ours to eventually try to enter into through acquisition. And so I think in our minds, you know, Oregon's a bit of our legacy market. It's where we, uh, you know, got, got, uh, got a, a, a nice lesson in competitive cannabis markets and, and really dialed in our business. But, you know, if you look at it today from a revenue standpoint, the business is really Michigan, Mass, Missouri. And then going forward, it'll be, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, and potentially Illinois. Well, you had answered our our next question, which was <laughs> expansion opportunities and, and the new markets that excite you. So um, we'll check that off of our list. But I'd like to go and, and talk a little bit about your thoughts on uh, interstate commerce. There's really a lot of debate about whether or not or even when um, federal reform should include interstate commerce. And um, I, I guess it's specifically relevant to uh, your, your quote unquote home state of Oregon, um, even though you're... Um, I guess a Michigander and a New Yorker too. So um, call your, your, your first, your first, the company's first state. Let's first call it. state, yes. Um, and and Oregon is pushing hard, really, for this pact with um, with their uh, you know sister states ahead of, of federal reform. Would you welcome that opportunity to engage in interstate commerce? Um, I think that I don't think there's a simple yes or no answer to that. In my opinion, um, 
I think that I think that it would create some challenges for us. Uh, I think we've I think a lot of companies like ours have built a lot of infrastructure in multiple markets, particularly on the production side, that may become obsolete or not make sense if there was a very rapid federal legalization. I would also worry about uh, sort of the the craft nature of the industry really being threatened because I think you would have uh, you know players that have a, a completely different level of scale coming into the industry, and and I think the 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 the, the nature of the products and and the experience and and a lot of that stuff would would change pretty fundamentally. And so I'm I'm probably the type of person who's looking for more incremental reform over time. Uh, and I also candidly think that there's almost no chance of of a national marketplace coming into existence anytime soon. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, there's just really not enough political support for that uh, federally to happen, even among Democrats. Um, that's for sure. So I think, yeah, I think in my mind, uh, what's much more likely to happen is a series of incremental steps. And, and I think even those incremental steps will probably take longer than, you know, people would like or, or expect. Uh, but, but yeah, so I, I think, I think that moving too quickly may be too disruptive um, to the state markets. Uh, so it's about finding the right, the right incremental steps and the right timeline. And and I do think we eventually get there to a national marketplace, uh, but I, I don't I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. And and I don't know that it, I would want it to happen overnight. No, I, I think that's I, I think that's fair. Um, so, Encore, you know, many of your multi-state competitors have have chosen to go public at one point or another, and most are traded now up in Canada on the CSC uh, or maybe the NEO. Uh, but to date, C- C3 has chosen to remain a private company. Um, so what made you make that choice? And uh, do you have any plans for a public offering in the future? So, you know, it's a great question. It's it's one that we've debated internally for many years, um, you know, whether to consider that path or not. Um, I think the way that I look at it, you know, I, I started my career, as I mentioned, as a, you know, securities and transactional lawyer. And so I've, I've, you know, got a decent sense of what all is involved in being a public company, the level of compliance and disclosure, um, you know, the, the kind of incentives that it creates for uh, the leadership of those companies uh, in order to sort of, you know, keep the market uh, in a good place and, and happy with the company's progress. And so I think that I've always been pretty attuned to what I would consider the the, the cons or the drawbacks of being a public company. Um, you know, to me, the pros of being a public company are, of course, theoretically greater access to capital, uh, more exposure, um, you know, access to different types of capital, potentially. Obviously, there are a lot of institutional investors that that are only looking for, for public liquid, you know, uh, liquid uh, stocks to invest in. And so, um, and so the point I'm getting to is that in my mind, the trade-off of, you know, sort of the, the pros, the, the capital, the liquidity, et cetera, which I think are fairly limited uh, when you list on some of these Canadian and, and other international exchanges, didn't really outweigh the negative aspects of being public in terms of the compliance and regulatory burden and, and the incentives that it creates. And so, you know, for us, that we've always been on the side of that equation to say it doesn't make sense. Um, now, I would also say that we're smaller than some of our largest competitors, of course. Uh, and so the math and the equation may be different for those larger players. We have not, again, the nature of our company, we've come out of these competitive markets. 
we built it mostly organically. We haven't done much of an M&A. And so I don't, I also don't know that we are a perfect candidate for the public markets, uh, like some of our compa larger competitors may be. Uh, but at least for us, our company individually, it just didn't feel like that trade-off made sense. And, and also, uh, I would say we are in a fortunate position where we have very strong relationships in the private capital markets. And so we've been able to, to support our business and raise capital uh, through those direct relationships, through those private investors. And, and you know, it, it, it may be a different story if we were unable to, to, to tap into that type of capital. We may, we may look at it differently. But, but for us, we've, we've had those sources of capital and on balance, it just didn't feel like it made sense up to this point to go public. I would say that uh, as we look forward, one of those pieces of incremental reform that I'd like to see in the U.S. is, is you know, some sort of, uh, safe harbor protection or other path given to the exchanges to allow them to list U.S. cannabis businesses. I think that would be a massive step forward for the industry. Uh, and certainly, you know, if we continue to grow and if we're in a position where we would be an attractive candidate, um, I think the U.S. capital markets and going public in the U.S. would be something that we'd be, you know, really strongly considering over time if we're if we're the right candidate for it. Yeah, I think uh, I think every I think pretty much every uh, multi-state cannabis company would uh, would agree with that one. <laughs> yep, yep. No, absolutely. I think that you know that feels to me like how we you know how we get to an exciting outcome is through that kind of a path. So, are you feeling that it's been a? Um... You, I mean, you haven't built built your company slow and steady. It's been, you know, no, nothing in cannabis is slow and steady. But are you feeling a little bit of relief, or that burden is is off of you that maybe some of the public companies are feeling now with this just absolutely ridiculously tight capital market? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, um, I, some of some of the larger companies are definitely under more pressure than us uh, to show. Uh, quicker growth, um, and some of them are very levered up, so they may have maturities coming or, or other uh, liquidity-related concerns. So, yeah, I, I think we've been more conservative, and so maybe that puts us in a little bit of a better position in this marketplace. Um, but we've also grown much more slowly than them. So, uh, you know, the trade-off for us has been always trying to figure out when should we become more aggressive. You know, certainly now. I think we're in a mindset now of of looking at M&A and, and being more active from an acquisition standpoint than we've ever been in the past, because we also are feeling some pressure to continue growing our business and doing it more quickly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think some of the choices we've made historically uh, that are more conservative have, you know, maybe, you know, put us in a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a better position now relatively, but but that's been at the cost of slower growth, I would say. So um, so it's always that trade-off, I think, and um, and you know, for us, we want to accelerate. We want to uh, we we'd like to keep showing the market more scale that we can compete with with the largest MSOs. Um, and so for us right now, as we look around, we're trying to say, well, how can we how can we expand? Where are there interesting opportunities to acquire licenses and existing assets? And and then you know, frankly, the most important question is how do we finance those deals, right? And so um, so that's the you know, that's the, the the million or billion dollar question right now is, is, you know, everyone knows there seem to be great, great buys out there, great opportunities, but, but the capital markets are so tight. Uh, you know, how do you continue to, to grow your business in this environment? Excellent. So 
Well, let's move on to to sort of innovations. Um, you know, what 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 innovations in the cannabis industry most excite you today? What are you seeing out there now, and and, and what are you seeing coming on the horizon that really uh, you know that that interests you and and and, uh, and and motivates you? Yeah, I mean, I think on the product side, um, I'm I'm seeing a huge amount of product innovation that's happening, and particularly again in the very competitive markets um, like Michigan, California some of these places, because again, the markets are getting to the point now where you can't just put out a product and expect to sell it and make money. You have to have a differentiator. You have to have something unique. Uh, and so, you know, in flower, we're seeing just a huge amount of interest in, uh, in, in new genetics and in, in high quality breeders, high quality cultivators. Um, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in that world and it'll continue to mature uh, and, and, you know, I really view flowers having analogies to wine and other things. And I, I'm, I'm excited. I think that as the, as the information gets better, as the consumer gets more educated, I actually think that there's still a lot of upside potential in high quality flower. You know, when I look at, you know, the, the sort of price differentiation in, in, in flower, uh, from, you know, high quality flower to low quality flower, it's, it's still a fairly tight range. Um, and, you know, I think there's room for that to 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 widen and, and there to be even more of an opportunity for for the highest quality branded premium flower players. Uh, so that, you know, I think there's a lot of exciting things happening there. I think in other categories, you know, I'm seeing tons of new form factors uh, in, in edibles, uh, which I think is super exciting. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation happening uh, in that category, you know, and, and beverages sort of tie into that. And, you know, then now there's all sorts of products that are sort of in the gray space in between edibles and beverages. So I just think there's going to be a lot of innovation to come in new form factors, new formulations uh, in a lot of these categories. Uh, and so, so just seeing a ton of product innovation, I think as the markets get more competitive, as companies mature and in, invest more into their R&D and, and new product development, we're just going to see more and more of that. So really exciting times, I think, and, and you know, we'll see where that goes. And then I'd say on the retail side, um, you know, I think the industry is really maturing in terms of uh, the technology stack that, you know, that's out there, the, the, the options that exist, the way that we engage with the consumer, the way that we market. You know, I think it felt to me like, you know, even two or three years ago, we were still, you know, very much kind of in the stone age with cannabis retail. And we weren't, we didn't have access to a lot of the tools and, and the normal playbook that retail businesses would have. And I think that is quickly changing as well. There's a lot of great technology companies out there. Uh, I think that, you know, that whole space is filling in and, and maturing quickly. And so I think it's allowing us as cannabis retailers to, you know, kind of put that whole playbook out there to, to be more mature in our approach to the, to the consumer and to the market. Um, and I think, you know, I'm seeing these, you know, pretty like in Michigan, for example, there are just some really, really strong retailers and they really understand the space. They're able to thrive even in these incredibly competitive environments. Um, and I think it bodes well for those companies that are, that are figuring all that out, you know, long-term to be able to grow and, and scale and be successful. Awesome. So you met, you mentioned something in there about cannabis beverages. And I want to, I want to ask you a question about that. Cause I feel like that's one of the most like controversial segments of the industry today. Like, I feel like, I feel like every year I read the same article that this year is going to be the year of the cannabis beverage, right? This is going to yeah. be the year that cannabis beverages really take off. And it's, I feel like the last year or two, it has become a bigger category. I mean, the success of brands like Can, you know, particularly taking off in a number of states, I feel like in the more mature markets like California, 
you, you actually are seeing some, you know, some beverage companies gain market share, but I don't think they've ever really gained the kind of market share that folks have been predict, predicting for, for a long time now. And, and I, I've got some thoughts as to why that is and, and what's going to, you know, what it may take for beverages to really actually take off. But I'd be curious to get your take on this. Cause it, I mean, it, it is one that just seems so, so controversial, controversial to a degree, right? But with so many different different opinions on when and whether this category is really going to take off, and if it's ever going to be, you know, a, a large segment of the uh, of the market, as many as predicted. So, I'm curious to get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I my take. So, uh, I think I guess my take long term is that yes, it will be a major category. Um, I think that it will be a category on par with you know, edibles with carts. Um, I think it'll be to that size. So I, I'm very much a believer in, in the category longer term. Um, I think right now the challenge that you have is you do have, you have many markets where it is incredibly tiny still. Um, it is showing pretty significant growth, but it's starting from a very low base. Um, we do yeah. see in markets like Missouri, where we are though, that it's, you know, kind of a more meaningful category there already. So it does seem to be very, market by market, uh, and, and depending on the type of consumer. And I think, you know, medical versus rec and dosages, I, I would say are a key, key thing that's still being figured out. Our beverages, you know, do, does a cannabis beverage consumer want two and a half milligrams of THC or do they want a hundred? You know, I don't think people really figured it out. Like what? You know, I definitely don't want a hundred. But the vast majority of like, your, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just like edibles, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, Michigan just went to 200 milligram edibles on the AU side from a hundred uh, because that's what was on the, in the medical market for a long time. And like, we're seeing like an almost overnight shift in the marketplace to, to 200 milligram edibles from hundred, because if you think about it from the consumer standpoint, they're paying on their price per milligram of THC is much higher in some of these categories like beverage, like edibles relative to flour or carts. You know, if you just do the math on what they're paying and for how much THC. And so I think there's still work to be done. And I think there's probably subcategories within beverages of your, you know, your beer equivalent, which is your low dose and your, you know, hard liquor versus your, you know, your 151 or whatever. Right. So you can see a, a whole spectrum of beverage dosages and stuff happening. But, but I do think that as that gets figured out and there's more options, I, I think it will grow as a category. I think you're also having, you know, I'll tell you, we've looked at it from a production standpoint and building a brand in beverages. The CapEx right now is still so significant relative to the market size that it's really stopping people from entering and, and sort of hurting innovation in that category. And, and some of that's driven by the fact that, again, you're serving a single state with that production capex and so the math on that is really upside down right now and so but that will continue to change as as uh as you know this becomes a larger category in you know your markets like california where there's an, a large enough you know state level market to support it you know that's where you're seeing the success for guys like can and and some other folks out there so um so i, I think it's i think it's a matter of time i think it'll take a little longer for some of the reasons that i'm describing and i think that you know, figuring out the dosage piece and what the consumer is looking for in these products is, I think, going to be pretty crucial. Um, but but I, I think it's inevitable that it becomes a large category over time. I, I just I don't have any very specific predictions on exactly what that time frame looks like. No, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, one, one thing that I've said on this and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to Ann to, to help us wrap up here. But I think it takes I think it takes social consumption becoming more ubiquitous. 
right? In that, like, I, I think you absolutely could be right. I think that absolutely, it's there. There is a social aspect to the beverage format that's different. Yeah, and it's and it's what people are used to, right? People go to a bar and they drink. Um, yeah. And if you if you're particularly if you're able to offer cannabis in places where you can also offer alcohol or food, right? In in, in restaurants in particular, I think that's when people want you know lower dose products that takes them a longer time. Because right? if you you know you you smoke a a bowl, you smoke a joint, you eat an edible, and you're done, right? That's yeah. it. But alcohol or, or you know liquid <laughs> beverages, right, yeah. lend themselves to you know consuming over a longer period of time while you're being social. But if you're just going to go home, right, most people don't want to have to drink four cans of can, right, or four cans of a, of a drink. They'd rather, you know, they, they'd rather take one edible or, or smoke a joint and then, you know, if they're high and they can get on about whatever else they want to do. Um, so yeah. I think that I think having it in well, an environment where people are used to consuming drinks um, in somewhere that feels more normal, where you want that longer period of time to consume. Like, I think that's what ultimately gets it done. But, um, yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. I, don't, I think as you, as the products are there to serve those different use cases, that's how the category will grow. Right. So like if there's social consumption in some markets and then people put out the right products that are designed for that, you know, type of use in that social environment, then, then that category will grow. If, if you build it, want to, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because some people may want to, you know, the, the, the energy drink equivalent of like hundred milligrams of THC and a little shot that they just pound real quick. Right. So that, you know, I think you're going to, I think you're going to see all kinds of different use cases and then people will have to create the products to, to serve those. But I, I absolutely think it's, it's going to, you know, we, we, we take, you know, as a society with alcohol and, and other beverages, it's just so ingrained. It's just hard to imagine THC not, not properly making its way into that category. That's right. That's right. As we kind of wrap up here, I have a, a couple of last questions for you. Um, you know, uh, this audience that listens to this podcast are, are mostly investors, um, retail investors, you know, people interested in the business of cannabis. So can you talk a little bit more about your ideal kind of end game for C3? Are you guys uh, looking for an acquisition for international expansion or for running this nice, tidy, profitable company into your retirement? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm about to turn 40 next month. So if I, if I'm running this into my retirement, then, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's exactly the right choice, for me, but, uh, but no, I mean, look, it's a good question. I mean, I, look, I've, I've raised capital. Um, I've got, you know, folks in this that have supported us that I'd like to, uh, see them have a great financial outcome, certainly for, Vishal, myself, Joel, we are not wealthy people. We don't come from, you know, we are self-made, I guess, in that sense. And so uh, certainly our net worths are tied up in this company, almost 100%. Um, and so uh, and so I give that context because I think it's important in terms of our motivations and what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, I would say that we love running this business. Um, we view ourselves as pretty hardcore operators in this space and we we really embrace it we're not we're not in this for you know a quick flip or you know to make just just to make some money we really we have a lot of passion for what we do and we're very hands-on um and so i don't think we're looking to you know make any moves anytime in the near future um that would be you know in terms of selling the business or trying to exit it in some fashion i think that we'd like to continue building it we think there's still an opportunity for us to continue to build scale. We'd like to really 
focus a lot of energy on our brands and building those so we can truly be this branded MSO and which we think is a, is a, maybe a differentiator longer term to be that. Um, and so, so we want to keep building the business. We also think that frankly, we're not, our companies, our industry is not being valued properly right now because of mm-hmm. the capital markets and regulatory situation. So to us, you know, we've done too much work and for too long to, uh, not get to the other side of that, if you will, in terms of valuations and multiples. And so, uh, so we're certainly not, you know, we're not looking to, to shortchange ourselves ahead of that happening. Um, and so we want to keep running it out. And, and I think we'll continue to stay private for now. Uh, we do, you know, have some access to capital where we need it. So we can, we feel like we can stay private, continue to grow it. Um, I think if the U.S. capital markets do open up, I think that could be very a very exciting path for us to both uh, continue to you know run the business and continue to grow it, but also ideally to give some liquidity to you know to people that have invested in us and and you know if they do want to exit have that opportunity. Um, and so I think the U.S. public path is one that we're certainly considering longer term. And then um, you know I think you know if we're at this for a few more years and we've got a sizable business and, and, you know, there are opportunities to exit. I don't think we would ever not entertain those. Um, but, but it feels to me like for now, we want to keep running this thing, growing it and potentially seeing a path to some liquidity, you know, in the U S public markets eventually. Well, I love it. We're excited to, to follow you guys um, and just absolutely wish you the best of luck. So um, Ankar Rungta, co-founder and CEO of C3 Industries, thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank thank you. you so much for having me, guys. It was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Anytime. Our thanks to Ankur Rangta, co-founder and CEO of C3 Industries. Check him out at C3 industries.com. That's the letter C, C number three, I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you want to chat with us, please find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore green rush or on Instagram at the green rush underscore podcast, or we love hearing from you. So please drop us an email, green rush at KCSA.com. We are always looking for feedback and great ideas. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay, one take.